Welcome, First Friends Church family. October is Missions Month, and we are talking about multiplication through planting disciples. We are excited to be partnering with and supporting the work of Stark County Young Life, as well as a new Friends Church plant in Cleveland, with the aim to reach the Indian population of that city. We are so glad to have you tuning in because here at First Friends Church, we live to glorify God together by loving Him, making disciples, and proclaiming the gospel. Now for this week's message. As First Friends Church, we live to glorify God together by loving Him, making disciples, and proclaiming the gospel. Three weeks ago, we examined the account of the two followers of Jesus that met Him on the road as they traveled to a town called Emmaus. And in just a few short hours, Jesus transforms those followers into witnesses. They're no longer just looking to Jesus. They're now proclaiming him to others. And that's a transformation that each and every disciple of Jesus must, so it's not that we should, but we must undergo. We must be transformed into his witnesses. So today, we're going to hear this commission to witness, coming from Jesus himself to his disciples. From time to time, Julie and I like to recommend books to each other that uh, we haven't read. Um, Sometimes it can come across a little bit uh, passive-aggressively. I think you need to read this book on anger, or, you know, I think you need to read this book on humility, or whatever it might be. Uh, It doesn't carry a lot of weight when we know the other hasn't read the book. Disciples of Jesus are called to witness what we have witnessed. So what we've experienced and what we therefore know to be true. So it's not a matter of us making up something about which to witness. It is recounting, telling, sharing, pointing to what we have witnessed and experienced. In the process of this commission, Jesus calls his disciples specifically to experience him, know him, and then join him as his witnesses. So our account this morning begins immediately following the Emmaus Road story. The two followers have just arrived back in Jerusalem, and they're still telling everyone there about what happened to him on the road, about how Jesus appeared to them, walked with them, and then they recognized him when he broke the bread before they were about to share a meal together. If you don't have a hard copy Bible with you today and you'd like to borrow one for the rest of the service, the ushers are coming back down the aisles with a copy. Just catch their eye, raise your hand, they'll give you one. And as we say each week, if you don't own a Bible, of your own. Uh, Please don't just borrow this one. Accept it rather as a gift from us and take it with you as you leave today. So our passage is from the very last chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Remember, Luke is, is one of four accounts that we have of highlights of Jesus' life. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we call them Gospels. They're not biographies because they, they include actually just a tiny sliver of everything that Jesus said and did while he was on earth. But in this gospel account of Luke, Luke was a doctor. He himself, I want want, want to emphasize this, he himself was not an eyewitness to Jesus' life. 
So that helps us maybe understand why he attaches so much importance to the idea of those who were eyewitnesses becoming witnesses to others. And we see this in his gospel. We also see it in the book of Acts, which is in many ways a continuation or the second volume, if you will, of Luke's gospel. So we'll be reading from chapter 24 of Luke, beginning with verse 36. Now remember the context. The, the two followers have just arrived back from, their, from Emmaus, and they've just finished telling the disciples that are gathered together what they saw and what they experienced. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, they asked him, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. I want you to note an emphasis that Luke makes in this chapter. In verse 15, verse 36, and verse 39, in each of these instances, Luke emphasizes that it was truly and fully Jesus who appeared, right? Not a ghost, not an image, not a spirit, not an illusion or apparition. It was Jesus himself. All that he is fully appeared to these people. And in all the gospel accounts, only Jesus himself convinces people of the truth of his resurrection. The disciples do not believe Mary Magdalene. They don't believe the other women. They don't believe Peter and John. They don't even fully believe the angels or the two from the Emmaus Road. They're only convinced when they meet the risen Jesus himself. And that's why Jesus invites them to experience him. And what do I mean by experiencing Jesus? In this account, Jesus makes himself fully accessible to all the people in the room. He encouraged them, right? He said, touch, look, see. Look at my hands and my feet. Look at the holes here. You still don't believe? You think I'm a ghost? Give me something to eat. You have a snack around here somewhere? I don't know who keeps a snack of broiled fish, but the disciples apparently did, and, and, and Jesus eats it, and he's doing everything that he can to show them he's real. This is really me, bodily resurrected. 
I can even eat. When I was a young child, I think I was four or five, my older sister, who, Catherine, who's eight years older than I, when she was in high school, she had a friend. I don't remember the friend's name. I just call her magic to this day. It's, it's magic because she and my sister would always do a little magic show for, for me, for the little brother. And it was one of those very elaborate magic shows that involved me closing my eyes a lot um, while different things were changed into something different. So, right, so one time, this friend Magic um, told me to close my eyes, and she transformed um, my sister into a brownie. And um, I was really distressed, and then I burst into tears as she proceeded to eat the brownie. Now, at that point, my sister then pops out from under the desk where she had been hiding, and I didn't believe it was her because I thought that she had been, I believed it. I, was, I, I had swallowed this illusion. I thought that she had been transformed into this brownie. And I remember my sister saying, it's me, it's me. And she's hugging me and, you know, touching me. And she's like, I'm really here, I'm really here. And I'm <laughs> sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. I was a bad friend my sister had, but... But my sister is doing everything she can to convince me, it's really me. It's really me. Jesus did not hide himself from his disciples at this point. He reveals his spiritual and physical reality to their sight and to their senses, and he then invites them to experience him, the fact that he's real. So what might this look like for us today because Jesus isn't physically present in the same way as he was to the disciples in this account in Luke? Consider Psalm 34, 8. This is something that David wrote. And he writes the simple phrase, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, obviously, He's not literally speaking of chewing and swallowing or licking something to taste it. It's the same theme of invitation to experience the reality and truth, to see what Jesus is like and to know that he is good. But we must look, touch, see. In other words, we, we, we need to step out to experience him. And I'm going to suggest something here to those of you that have not yet given your lives to Jesus. So you, you don't know him yet. Maybe all this is, is new to you. I want to invite you to try him out, to test his promises. This is something that God asks us to do actually quite often in the Bible. Test me. In other words, he promises something, and then he invites us. He said, try me out. Test me and see if I can be trusted. Jesus stands up to the tests of logic, the tests of philosophy, the tests of history, and the tests of reality. And he invites you, he invites me, he invites all people to do this, to experience him. And now this next step is going to let us know a little bit more, perhaps, of how that can happen. First, Jesus invites the disciples to know that he is real, to experience his reality, that he is spirit and body, truly risen from the dead, and then he invites them to know him. 
So first, it's that experiential piece of acknowledging and realizing, yes, he's real, but then there's a deeper level of knowledge to know who he is, what he truly came to earth to do. Once again, just as he did on the Emmaus Road, what does Jesus do? He opens the scriptures. I can't overemphasize this point. Jesus himself, physically present, yet even so, where does he go to show himself to the disciples. He goes to the Scriptures. Even to God himself, the Bible is not superfluous and it's not redundancy. If Jesus himself goes to the Scripture to reveal who he is to the disciples, then the the Scriptures are where we need to go as well. We need Scripture. We need the holy word of God. It's the nourishment and sustenance of the soul of the believer. It's the means by which new believers are formed and transformed. It's the the revelation of Jesus. In and through his word, we come to know him. The word became flesh. So we did not experience the flesh in the same way that the disciples did the flesh of the, the bodily presence of Jesus. But we have been given his word, which reveals him the same. And just to be clear, this is sort of a side note, right? What scriptures was Jesus using? It wasn't the New Testament, right? It was the Old Testament. This is very important because there, there's been some trends within Christendom and evangelicalism to, to sort of minimize the Old Testament and, and say that it's not important. It is important. It reveals Jesus just as the new does. We need it together. We need the whole counsel of Scripture. But if, if you don't know Jesus but would like to, or there's a curiosity that's brewing in you about him, Maybe it's just a wondering, is this, this seems so fantastical, right, that, that some guy who lived thousands of years ago was actually God, and that he actually died, and that somehow that death carries some kind of benefit for me thousands of years later, but that he didn't just stay dead, but he actually rose again, and it's actually the resurrection that proves his divinity, that proves his power, and that proves his goodness. So, I understand why that sounds fairy taleish. But the question is, is it true? So if, if you don't know or you're unsure, but you're truly seeking and you want to know, commit yourself to experiencing him by reading his word. And, and when I say reading, I'm not just talking about skimming it. I'm talking about taking the time to settle in it. Pay attention If you don't know or you're uncertain about where to start, I would encourage you to start with the Gospel of John um, because John was one of Jesus' closest followers, and he wrote specifically in order to tell people about Jesus that had not experienced him. 
And then, let me address those of you who already do know Jesus. Uh, We need to intentionally lead others to Scripture as well. That's what Jesus did. And if that's where Jesus led them, why would we do any different? And so, what, what I recommend when, when I'm having a conversation or maybe a series of conversations with somebody who is showing an interest in Jesus but has not truly come to that point of surrender or of acknowledging that Jesus is real and giving their lives to him, I recommend, I, I tell them to do this. I, I suggest start reading in the Gospel of John, but before you do, each time before you read, pray. And I know praying is weird to someone who's never done it before. There's no special vocabulary. There's no introduction that you need to prayer 101. It's a conversation to someone who is present even though you cannot see them. And I, and I invite them, I say, start by praying, and you don't have to close your eyes. You don't have to do a big, a big or a small song and dance. Just pray this. Jesus, I'm going to read your word. And if you're real, and if you're present, then open my mind to understand it. Open myself to believe and to see you in the pages of Scripture. That's what I invite them to do, because I can't convince them of that. I can't convince them that something's true. None of us can convince somebody else. We can't change their minds. We can't change their hearts. And especially when it comes to belief in Jesus, the only one who can do that is the Holy Spirit, and we're going to get to that in a moment. But invite them to the Word and invite them to ask Jesus to open their minds to it. And that's also something that we ourselves, those who already believe, can also practice. Every time that we approach the Word of God, Lord, I'm going to read your Word. Open my mind. Open my mind to grasp it, to understand it, and to apply it. No person who has access to the Bible in a language they understand can maintain a healthy spiritual life with God if they're not being renewed, sustained, convicted, and challenged by Scripture regularly and consistently. I'm going to say that again. This is a hard truth, but it's true. No person who has access to the Bible in a language they understand can maintain a healthy spiritual life with God if they're not being renewed, sustained, convicted, and challenged by Scripture regularly and consistently. I think that's one of the greatest lies that the enemy has foisted on the church is that we can be fine in our relationship with Christ without ever spending time with Him. The Word of God is the food and life of the believer. Now, over the course of my long life, there have been several different analogies that I have imagined as it relates to the Word of God and me. So I, I think as a child and probably an adolescent young adult, I used to think of it in terms of like a gas station where you go and you get filled up, you know, and then you travel around for a while, then you come back and you get filled up again. And that's actually a really bad analogy, I think, for life with Christ. Because what does it picture? It pictures us being filled and then leaving, then we're away, right? Um, Then I thought I would get a little bit more spiritual, and so I thought it would be more like a, a battery charge, 
you know, so we get our batteries charged up and then we go and the power, but then the same thing happens. The power runs out. We got to come back. So even though it's older technology, um, I actually think that the best image for this relationship with Christ as it relates to the power for witness and daily infilling is an electrical outlet into which we're plugged because that keeps us close, first of all, right? And it's a constant acknowledgement that we need that power because as soon as it's unplugged, it goes, right? And, and when we keep that image like of, of, of the gas station in mind, then we slide into this perspective, well, it's like church Sunday morning, I can come once a week, get filled up, and then I'm good for the week. But I think a better analogy is, this, is, is the electrical cord. We are constantly in need. And if we are ever disconnected from our Savior, from the Lord, then we are powerless and empty. Feed deeply on the Word of God and invite others to do the same. Always with the perspective, Lord Jesus, it is you by your Spirit who opens my mind to understand. Please do so. And finally, so we have have Jesus inviting his disciples to experience him and then to know him and finally to join him as his witnesses. Note what he says right near the end of this passage. He describes these things about himself, and then he says, you're witnesses of these things. Witnesses of and witnesses to. We talked about this three weeks ago. A witness is one who sees, but a witness is also one who testifies to what he or she has seen. And then they relay, share, or pass along that information. The way Jesus uses the word, it must encompass both of these aspects, right? So we're not one without the other. And that's sometimes our problem that we are either the first where we have witnessed the transformation of Jesus within our own lives, but we refuse to then be an active witness to what we have witnessed. But sometimes it's the opposite. We haven't really experienced the presence of Christ. So we have this head knowledge, and we have an intellectual assent to these certain propositions that we believe to be true in our mind, and we, we, we kind of skip the relational side of experiencing and knowing, and we try to then communicate or witness, but we're trying to, again, witness to something that we haven't really experienced. And that's going to be dry, and what that's going to end up like is going to be a debate. It's just going to be an argument about a list of propositions because what we lack is simply the reality of the story. Remember three weeks ago, I talked about that, the man who had been born blind. And at the end of that account, the Pharisees are trying to force him to denounce Jesus as someone evil. And all he says is like, I don't know if he's someone evil. I don't know if he's possessed by a demon. All I know is I was blind and now I see. If we are believers then we are disciples. If we are disciples, then we are witnesses. We may be bad witnesses, but we are witnesses regardless. So Jesus is specific with them also 
as to what they are witnesses of and to. We could say this is the content of their witness. Specifically, Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection, and the repentance for forgiveness of sins. That's really the gospel in a nutshell. Imagine that, that Jesus would want them to be witnesses to the gospel. They are witnesses of these things. They experience them. Jesus does not commission them. Again, I I know maybe I'm beating a dead horse, but he doesn't commission them to witness to something that they had not experienced and known. And in a similar way, we are witnesses of those things if we have been transformed by Jesus and if we walk with him. So if the content of that of the witness is Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection, and then the repentance for forgiveness of sins, then what's the method? How do we do that? We do it by His power, and we do it in His time. Jesus tells them, you are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised. What was that promise? The Holy Spirit. The powerful indwelling of God Himself in His people. And Jesus tells them specifically to wait until that comes. To wait, because they didn't really understand what it was. So to them at that point, it's still a that. They didn't know it was a He. Wait until the Holy Spirit comes. And there's an implication there too, right? They're going to know And if we read into Acts chapter 2, we know that they knew when the Holy Spirit came. Because it's going to be only by Him and through His power that we will be effective witnesses. Again, living in Brazil, someone had given us a 1991 Ford EcoStar minivan. And Brazil had imported these vans for just two years. So we, we were given this van in 2005, 2006, somewhere along there. Um, there were no parts available for this vehicle anywhere in the country. So there were numerous times that we came back with some pretty interesting, came back from the U.S. Rather, with some kind of interesting things in our luggage. Um, one time it was a head gasket um, for a 1991 Ford EcoStar minivan. And um, when I had taken that van to the mechanic, first of all, he said, look, it's the head gasket, you know, I can, I can get your head, you know, ready to go, but without that gasket, there's nothing that we can do. Um, so he said, you're just going to have to leave your van here until you can find a way to get that gasket into the country. So it would be absolutely pointless if I had told him, hey, it's okay. Just go ahead and put the head on there without the gasket. We're going to be fine. We're going to be fine. We want to go ahead and do it. We got to do it now. That would have just destroyed the engine even more than it had already been destroyed. Just wrecked the motor. So he had to wait. I had to wait for that gasket. We don't need to run ahead of God, and we're not witnesses on our own ability and power. That should be a comfort to all believers. Witnessing is not something we do on our own. The Holy Spirit of God is the one who empowers and makes possible our witness. And we forget that all the time. 
I think that's one of the reasons that we're often so fearful or so unwilling to actually speak out. We're afraid. Partly because we forget, I don't have to convince them. I don't have to have all my arguments lined up perfectly. I don't have to be able to answer every single question that might be thrown at me. Why? Because it's the Holy Spirit who will convince them of truth. Jesus has simply invited us to allow the Holy Spirit to flow through us and what we say and through the way that we live. So what is the end goal? What's the point of being witnesses? What are we actually trying to do? It's to bring more people to Jesus. We have this image maybe sometimes of a a stone that's thrown into a calm, placid body of water, and we see those ripples that are just moving outward. And that that can be a good illustration for certain things, but in the context of being a witness, I think it's a, a bad image Because what we actually want is for all those outgoing ripples to come back to the source. We go and we bring people to Jesus because it's not us, it is him. Note one little phrase that Luke uses. I'm going to emphasize it again. Jesus opened their minds to understand the scripture. Who did that? Jesus did that. Not the men from Emmaus, but Jesus If witnesses are not bringing people to encounter Jesus, there's no point. We speak, tell, show, and live, always inviting people to experience, know, and join Christ himself. Witnesses bring people to Jesus. They don't bring people to a better life. They don't bring people to better relationships. They don't bring people to their best life now. They don't bring people to a list of rules. And they don't bring people to a religion. Witnesses bring people to the living, resurrected Jesus. Now, sort of in closing here, I I want to address four threats to witness. Um, There are more, I'm sure, but these are four that I think are primary. The first of them is fear. We're simply afraid to speak out and be honest about Jesus and the difference he's made in us. We're afraid of mockery. We're afraid of injustice, uh, prejudice, afraid of what others will think and do and say. The second is laziness. I think this is probably, for many of us, maybe the main one. We're simply lazy. God gives us opportunities to witness, but we're just too tired or too selfish to speak up. Um, I'll tell you this is a challenge for me. One, one way I see this laziness in myself is, um, and I've kind of alluded to this before, but on, on plane flights, on, on airline flights, because I, I know I'm going to be next to somebody. Um, now, they may not want to have a conversation, and that's fine if it's on them. But if I sit down there and I'm already, you know, immediately getting the earbuds in and focusing on something different, making it clear I don't want any conversation, I'm just shutting down any opportunity that might be there to begin with. Uh, it's one way my dad uh, has always been a challenge for me uh, in, a good, in a very good sense. Um, I like being alone in the car. I like listening to audiobooks or podcasts. My dad, in the city of Sao Paulo where we lived, if he ever had the opportunity to take a taxi rather than drive himself, he would take it. 
And I remember asking him, Dad, why would you do that? Plus, it's more expensive. He said, captive audience. He said, I've never been kicked out of a taxi before, at least not until we got to the destination. And I've ridden in taxis with him, and man, it takes him about a minute to get around to asking questions about Jesus and about faith. Now, I understand we're talking about different culture, a culture where people are very willing and open to talking about religion and faith and those kinds of questions. But at the same time, are we even open to to that? Are we thinking strategically about it? Do we have that desire? Are we willing to put ourselves before the Lord and say, okay, in any circumstance into which you lead me, I'm willing. If you give me the opening, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. The third threat, I think, is hypocrisy, or or rather, our awareness of our own hypocrisy. Maybe that's a better way to put it. So we're fully aware that oftentimes our lives and our lifestyles and our choices don't match the gospel, and because we know that, we're we, we know that the way we we live isn't in line with Jesus. So then we're unwilling, or maybe even unable, to speak of Him. Um, and there's two sides to this. The one side is a, that, that acknowledgement that we're all hypocritical to one extent or another. It's just a reality of living as broken yet redeemed human beings who have not yet been entirely perfected as we will be. So that's one, that's one issue. The other issue is when we, we know there is blatant, unconfessed sin in our lives. So if that's the case, we need to deal with that sin But otherwise, we have to remember something. We can acknowledge that hypocrisy. I mean, what's going to bring someone to Jesus is Christ's forgiveness and his mercy and his grace and our openness about our own brokenness and fallibility. And that's why we need Jesus. That's why anybody needs Christ. That's why we need to be saved. If we have it all together, we don't need him. Like Jesus himself said, I have not come for the healthy, but I've come for the sick. So we can acknowledge that because we're not bringing Jesus to ourselves. Or rather, we're not bringing other people to ourselves. We're bringing them to Jesus. And the final threat, I call it intimidation. It's really a subset of fear, but I think it deserves its own category. We don't speak up in witness because we do not think we are clever enough, smart enough, or know enough to engage others in a debate. And that's probably true. Most of us are not. Most of us are not. And we're concerned that the world will make fools of us and that we'll be embarrassed and that we will embarrass Jesus himself. But what did Jesus say that his disciples were witnesses of? The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. You are witnesses of these things. You, we, are witnesses of what Jesus has done in our lives and what he means to you. And and you may think, you know what, my testimony is so boring. My story of Jesus is so boring. I mean, if anyone has a boring story of Jesus, I do. I asked Jesus into my heart when I was five. I was a terrible sinner before that, let me tell you. Oh, I was into drugs and gangs, and I was, you know, I was just, you know, but when I was five, you know, the Holy Spirit transformed. Your story is your story. 
And for example, like for someone like me, my story may be exactly what somebody who's a really good person but doesn't know Jesus needs to hear. That, you know, I've definitely had my failings and my failures, but from a world's perspective, for most of my life, I've been a pretty good dude. And that's not nearly enough. That's not nearly enough. We don't have to be clever. We don't have to be prepared to engage in a deep theological debate. In fact, you have the freedom to say, I really don't know how to answer that question. Like the blind man said, I don't know, but all I can tell you is this. He changed me. He saved me. He forgave me. Forgiveness of sins. Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He calls us to do our part, to speak, witness, let him do his part. May God empower us as individuals and as a church to be his witnesses because multiplying by planting disciples will only happen if we are witnesses to and of Jesus. That's how disciples are planted. And these two organizations, these two missions that we're supporting this month and we're focusing on, Arun and Shoba and the church plant in Cleveland, and then Stark County Young Life, both of those are doing exactly this. They are witnessing to the reality and the power and the resurrection and the forgiveness of Jesus. Last thing I want to close with. I address those of you who may not yet know Jesus earlier. And I just want to circle back around and say that the first step in moving toward him, once you've decided, you know, once you're convinced that he's real. The first step is what we call repentance. Jesus himself talked about it here, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And repentance means turning. 180 degrees. Turning from idols to serving the living true God. I've, I've told before about getting in really complicated places with a GPS. And finally, the GPS just gives up and it says, when possible, make a U-turn. So on the one hand, I can acknowledge, yeah, I'm going the wrong way and just keep going. I can acknowledge, I see the GPS is saying, I'm hopelessly lost. It keeps saying, when possible, make a U-turn. And I can acknowledge, yeah, I'm lost. But until I actually make the U-turn, I have not repented and I have not changed. So that first step it's what idol are you following instead of Jesus? I want to invite you to repent, to turn from that idol or those idols and serve the living true God who has provided the sacrifice of his son so you can be forgiven. I invite you to experience Jesus, to surrender to him, and in so doing, to taste and see that he is good. And for those of you who already know Jesus, if you haven't heard it yet, today, then that means you've been asleep, which is fine. I fall asleep sometimes too. Look for Jesus. Look for him in his word. Look for him in his body, the church. And look for him in the power of his spirit that lives in us. Experience him. Know him. Be witnesses to his reality. As we continue to worship, the altars are open.
come in response to what the Lord may be doing in you or saying to you, speaking through you. And if you want to have someone come and join you and pray for you, come to this side of the altar. If you prefer to come and you want to just be in prayer and worship on your own before the Lord, come to this side. We'll respect your preferences. Let's stand and let's worship the one who has called us to be his witnesses. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. One way you can connect further with First Friends Church is through our website, firstfriends.org. There, you can learn about our equip groups as well as our upcoming events for all ages. On Sundays, we gather at 9 and 10.30 a.m., and we'd love to see you there. Have a great week!